Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. I think a lot of what they do, grooming it in really takes a couple of different pathways. So there's the charming, you know, I'm your friend, you're amazing, there's something very special about you, here are some gifts and lollies and like, because it starts with that little stuff of, 
I'll bring you Maccas, but you can't tell anyone. It's that gradual erosion of boundaries over time. As promised, this is part two of our two-part series with our anonymous guest from Monday. If you haven't yet listened to the first part, I highly suggest that you do before embarking on this part. Our guest today is a recovering heroin addict, and in our previous episode, we delved into her early childhood years and the chaos brought into her life at the hands of her mother. Concurrently to that, however, there was something else happening in her life. As very young children, she and her younger sister were being groomed and sexually assaulted by their neighbour for almost five years. In fact, this particular part of her story motivated our guest to reach out to us initially. She wanted to emphasise the crucial fact that it's never too late to report sexual abuse. As we heard in part one of this series, when our guest was a child, her contact with her mother was sporadic and chaotic, leaving her and her little sister to grow up in a single father household. They absolutely adored their dad and say that he could easily be described as the quintessential Aussie bloke. As is the case in many single parent families, however, our guest and her little sister had lots of unsupervised time while their father was working. We'll let her take it from here. So dad worked, so we'd get our taxi home from school because mm. we... Lived in Campsie, but we always went to school in Strathfield, which is quite a nice, well-to-do, wealthy part of Sydney. Mm. In hindsight, I don't really know how that happened. And then I went to a, actually got into Fort Street, which is a selective high school, but I didn't go because my friends weren't going. But I did go to a nice all-girls, Kilton, Woolen Blazer public school in Strathfield. So yeah, we would come home and then he worked for telecom in those days. And so he kind of organised his work life around when we were around. Your neighbour. Yeah. So, yeah. And then dad would get home at about sort of 6.37. So, I mean, there were also lots of kids nearby. So he was a bit of both, really. You know, bit of the pedophile, bit of the playing outside. Grooming, um, old school grooming. Yeah, totally. King of, king of the kids in the neighbourhood. I kind of, I can remember a few times when we were you know, when we pretended that we weren't home, like we'd close all the blinds, but, you know, I mean, we were kids, right? So I've done a lot of training now about working with people with sexually harmful behaviours. Mm. And so, like, I think that's actually probably been really useful because I understand that it's the grooming, right? That, the like, adults are quite good at outsmarting kids because they're kids. Absolutely. But also in those days we were taught so strictly not to be rude hmm. and certainly not to be rude to adults. So even that action of trying to pretend you're not home, if an adult came knocking on the door, your next-door neighbour who you're supposed to be friendly to and he's friendly to your dad and all that, saying, I know you're in there, girls. Hmm. Yeah, totally. You'd open the door. Yeah, totally. You don't want to get in trouble. You don't want to be rude, you know. Yeah. And look, I mean, Dad used to ask us pretty regularly if anything was happening we always said no. What was happening? So he started to sexually abuse us both. Um, I would have been maybe seven or eight. So my sister would have been six, seven. Did you understand? Because, you know, when no. you say, yeah, that's the thing. When dad says, is there anything happening? You know, what's anything when you're that little? What do you mean, dad? What's anything? And then when it is happening, kids that age still, I think a lot of the times are thinking, I don't know what this is. I don't like it, but 
Totally. And again, I think there's a very, a pretty open dialogue these days. Yeah. You know, that stuff about nobody should touch you where your bathers go or your underwear goes. And Mm. like, I think parents are a lot better at kind of talking about that stuff with their kids these days. Mm. Look, I think dad was a bit uh, awkward probably about asking those questions. The fact that he was asking is pretty positive. Yeah. So he's trying, he's thinking about it. Of Mm. course, he's a single dad and he knows that you kids are home alone. Yeah, but we always protected the neighbour. Of course, and as we said, you don't know. Yeah, totally. And it's also that thing of like, so you say something, but the reality is like I'm coming home tomorrow after school and I've got two or three hours with no, because nobody's parents were home. We were all just kind of... (laughs) Yes. Running our own race, really, at that age. And you've got your baby sister as well. Yeah, I've got my little sister. We were outside a lot. You know, I played a lot of sport and there were quite a lot of kids around. So, you know, we had a treehouse in the backyard and we did all that kind of kid stuff. But then also there was also plenty of access for him. Yeah, so it wasn't just you and your sister. Well, look, I don't know, actually. That's it. Yeah, I don't know. Was he threatening to you about telling your dad or was he relying on you not really knowing what was happening? I think a lot of what they do, like I said, the training I've done, I get grooming at him really takes a couple of different pathways. So, you know, there's the charming, you know, I'm your friend, you're like amazing, there's something very special about you, here are some gifts and lollies and, you know, like because it starts with that little stuff of I'll bring you Maccas, but you can't tell anyone. And then, you know, it's that gradual erosion of boundaries over time. I also think that because a lot of pedophiles kind of turn it into such a secret that you end up too far down the rabbit hole, right? And you think, um, I think his line was that if anybody knows, you guys will get taken off your dad. Like child protection will take you away. Yeah, and you've lost your mum already. Yeah, yeah. Yes, there was nowhere else to go. So I think that was the line that worked. And look, when my dad died, we never told him. He died not knowing that that had happened. And I'm okay with that. He would have been absolutely devastated. I think he kind of uh, positioned himself as a bit of a babysitter, not only with our dad, but with the other parents in the block of flats. So he kind of positioned himself as a responsible adult who was keeping eye on us when our parents were out at work. He used to hang out at our house as if nothing happened, come and have dinner and do stuff on the weekends and, you know, they groom parents as much as they groom kids. So how long did this go on for? Um, Until I was 12. Oh, gosh, that's a long time. Yeah, it is. But when I was 12, I uh, kicked him in the in the testicles. <laughs> I did. I can really clearly remember it. It was a very good day, actually. And yeah, after that, it stopped. I was a bit like, I really should have done that earlier. Why did you, were you, uh, you were coming into consciousness about what was happening? Uh, no, we had an argument about something else unrelated. Oh. Where he was being a bit of a dick. Because he's quite a, I mean, he, he didn't have children of his own. And he was probably 30. I mean, he was a bit of a douche apart from being a pedophile. He also was just a dick. So 
I think he was being controlling and arguing with us about doing something. We're all playing out the front. And yeah, I think he picked a fight with us and I kicked him. I mean, I got into trouble from my dad uh, for it, but you know, I'm fine with that outcome. What do you think? Do you think he then sensed that you were, I don't know, not controllable anymore? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Gosh. Um, Did he leave your sister alone too after yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he left us both alone after that. Look, I think there's also something about kind of coming into your power, yeah. I think, about, I mean, I was only little, but physically had grown a lot in that time Yeah, and was a bit more capable of kind of fighting back, of mounting a defence. You know, we know the fight, flight, freeze response, Mm -hmm. that the younger the trauma happens, the more likely we are to freeze because we don't have any other possible means of kind of dealing with what's happening. So I guess for me, mounting that fight response was quite protective, I guess, quite healing. I wonder if you, do you remember looking at him differently? Like you coming home from school after that point and... Yeah, it's pathetic. And we moved a year later and never saw him again. How wonderful. Well, until court. I know also that you um, are an expert. You're an academic as well. And we talk, I'm sure very clumsily, uh, oftentimes with usually people who've gone on to become offenders about the um, brain development mm-hmm. and about specifically about brain development when people are born into violent mm-hmm. circumstances and, and this... Um, analogy that was told to me a couple of years ago that your brain is like, say, building a a house and that first slab that goes down the concrete slab, it goes down wonky if you're born into a violent situation. And then everything that's built on top of that is always a bit wonky. Mm. You know, that's the opportunity that is lost to you, basically. It's not your fault. You can go on to lack empathy and, and have all of these problems associated with brain development. Do you think growing up in this climate of um, your mum's unpredictability and these really frightening experiences. How does that affect children's brain chemistry? Such a good question, Michelle. Thank you. I spent a decade teaching this stuff. Okay, I knew you would know. Child protection workers and residential care workers and foster carers. The organisation I worked for had a lot to do with a Dr. Bruce Perry, who's a child and adolescent psychiatrist and neuroscientist from America. He's written a book called The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, which is a fantastic book. He was kind of one of the first people to start to think about the brain organisation as being hierarchical. So, you know, you start with the brainstem, you move on to kind of the diencephalon and the cerebellum, you move on to the limbic system and then the cortex. Um, From a psychoanalytic point of view, you know, um, Freud would say, show me the child at seven and I'll show you the man. Yeah which has largely been borne out by the neuroscience that, you know, those first six years of life are crucial for brain development and brain organisation. Bruce Perry would say that children can deal with a level of adversity and difficulty as long as they have that one safe relationship, Mm. as long as they have that one person who is their cheerleader with the unconditional positive regard, kids will turn out okay. So you had your dad? Do you think that's... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that what the childhood sexual abuse does to you is it gives you, well, what it gave me was absolute, utter, self-destructive nihilism of just wanting to kind of obliterate myself. So for those years when I was using, uh, I nearly died heaps of times, but I didn't really care. You know, it's always a roll of the dice where 
who knows if you'll wake up. I wasn't really that fussed either way because that kind of just absolute seeking oblivion, I think, is what um, sexual abuse does to women. That's my personal and probably professional opinion. A lot of those things are things that I've made sense of as Mm. I've been an adult. And I must say, getting older is great. The getting of the wisdom as you get older. I loved being able to say, I am a 40-year-old woman. I absolutely know what I'm doing. You can fuck off. The other thing is when you're in rehab and it is a counselling-based, you know, model, Mm. did your childhood, you know, come up in your group counselling and your solo counselling? Yeah, totally. Um, As I know now, working for as long as I have, they kind of go, oh, yeah, sexual abuse, farm you off to Casa. Yeah. Therapeutic community is quite intense because they're very much focused on the community as method. So the idea that actually it's your peers holding you to account and reflecting back to you your behaviour, both good and bad, is actually what helps people get better. But also, I was really lucky because we also went to two meetings a day, which is probably what actually saved me. Yeah. So I didn't stay clean. It took me a good six months. Were you shocked to learn when the first the first person suggested to you that maybe your addiction was related to your childhood and to all of those sort of things that had happened, including the abuse? Were you shocked by that suggestion? I couldn't quite wrap my head. Look, like I said, again, I was exhausted, actually. Yeah. So when I stopped using, I was exhausted. And uh, one of the things with heroin is all of a sudden your pupils are big, so everything is really bright mm. for probably a few months and everything hurt. My teeth hurt, my bones hurt. Everything hurt because you've got the anaesthetic has been taken away. And I was a bit like, how do I go from being an armed robber to this person who's like up for group at nine in the morning making my breakfast and whatever's? So I, I guess for me, the kind of realisation about my experience probably has more dawned on me progressively. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What I liked about your message, a little bit that I do know about you, is that you wanted to talk about something that we've tried to encourage people as much as possible about, and, and certainly the, the police, Victoria Police and their sockets have spoken to us about, which is you should, you can speak to police about historical sexual assaults. Mm-hmm. You, it's never too late to come forward. No statute of limitations. Right. And I like that you wanted to talk about that from your own lived experience. Yeah. And you don't, you don't hear those stories. You don't, you don't hear the stories where they go to jail, where you, they're convicted and go to jail. So how, at what point, what was the trigger for you yeah. to think, I want to talk about, I want to tell people what happened to me as a child, what the neighbour did, mm-hmm. and I want to do something about it. I um, was working at an organisation called Windana. Windana, one of the best known rehabs in Australia, yeah. oldest, yeah, best yeah. known, great uh, reputation. I was driving home. I used to work in Dandenong in the youth detox. Weird split shifts, 10 o'clock at night. I remember one of my besties being in his car and he was listening to AM radio and I was like, oh my God, you're such a loser. <laughs> and a story came on about a pedophilia ring uh, in Eurasia that had been uh, operating for many decades with lots of really high profile people involved. And I was like, oh, that's really full on. How does that happen for 30 years without anybody doing anything about it? And it dawned on me that it happens because people don't talk about it. The victims don't ever come forward. So I spoke to my partner and was like, I mean, you know, again, all of that stuff is pretty well known. Most of my female friends in recovery, because nearly everybody in my life is in recovery, because mm-hmm. we've all grown up together in the last 20 years. We've gone from rat bag scumbags to homeowning parents who've traveled the world together, which is awesome. I adore my peers. So um, I approached Socket in Moorabbin, made an interview time to come in. I got a female detective who was amazing. So it was really complicated, this story, because I'm in Melbourne. It happened in Sydney and my sister lives in Brisbane. Mm. So it was a tri-state affair. And it happened decades ago and I'm assuming you don't know where the offender is at that stage. No, but I knew his name and his date of birth. Yes. It was quite useful actually because his birthday is Australia Day. So when I went to police, it was quite easy for them to find him because I remembered that kind of detail. And he was 20 years exactly older than us because I was 25. So, um, you know, it had only been kind yeah, of a bit over 10 years. and a bit. Yeah. yeah. Since it had finished. Yeah. yeah. He was definitely still old enough to. Definitely. Because they don't stop, right? No. Like we know that about these guys. They mm. don't stop. Not if they get away with it. So spoke to a detective. She was actually really amazing. The crappy thing about that whole process is my partner at the time, if you have a support person, if they come in during the statement, they can't be in court. So we had to make a decision about whether or not she would sit with me while I made the statement or whether she would come to court with me. you can't do both. No, you can't do both. So um, I was really lucky. I had a great sponsor who basically framed it for me and said, you have to be able to go through this process and at every step of the way, let go of what the outcome is. So you make the statement and then you have to let go about whether or not, because it's never for sure that, you know, the police put together a brief and then it goes to a prosecutor and then the prosecutor decides whether they prosecute. Also, the police have to decide whether they arrest him and question him or whether like 
you know, there is always every chance that you make a statement and it goes nowhere. What stage of your recovery were you in? Um, I was two and a half, three years clean. This is reminding me very much of what you were saying earlier about forgiveness in recovery. Mm, yeah, about yeah. How you have to just kind of do it for your own reasons and not consider what's going to come back. Yeah, and not do it out of hate yeah. for him. Yeah. And not do it out of um, an expectation yes. that he will go to jail. Not focus on what's going to come of it. It has to be about, yeah. Yep. Or be found guilty or mm. any of those yeah. things. Which, yeah, again, I look back. I was really little at 25, but, you know, also quite determined to do it. So the making this, writing the statement took six months yeah, of, of going in every couple of weeks for a couple of hours so you must have uh, had a good relationship with your copper. With the cop, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was really lovely. And actually because the thing about the statement is that it is incredibly detailed. So it is not like glossing over sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse. It is these are the details. This is literally what he did, what I did, what happened. And so out of that statement, look, she had said to me, there's no guarantees about what will happen from this. What would make it easier would be, um, one, if he's been charged or convicted of other offences, that will corroborate your story and will make it more likely that you'll get a conviction. And I was like, well, my sister also was victimised. And she said uh, that would help. Like if there's two complainants, that also helps. So I spoke to my sister in Brisbane. At this point, she's in her very early 20s zero interest (laughs) in opening this up. Then, you know, a period of kind of conversation um, and I was like, that's fine. You don't have to press charges, but if you're able to speak to a detective and at least corroborate what I'm saying, that will help. Yeah. So, yeah, six months passes, the kind of statement, it was 40-odd pages long. Out of that, they drew out 12 charges from those incidents. Then... One day my sister got home and her husband was there and a police car was in their driveway and, of course, the cops come up and is like, I'm here to talk to you about your sister. And she's freaked out because of my history. She's like, she's dead, she's in jail, oh, my God, you know. Yeah. Um, It was a detective and, you know, it was about the criminal matter. Just to, uh, this is the corroboration. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but yeah, like I said, her husband was like, that fucking, oh my God, you are Yeah, because are they the types who just don't really want a police car in their driveway? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, and look, it was a, it was quite a shock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she went through a process with the police in Queensland um, and ended up deciding that she also wanted to press charges. Oh, so she went through a process of writing her own statement. So by the time all of that is done, it's maybe 18 months from when I started to kind of down the track. Then Queensland, Vicpol puts together a brief of evidence, goes to the DPP in Sydney in Parramatta, and they have to decide what, or to the police first, mm-hmm. and then they have to decide what they're going to do. So the police arrested him. Um, and questioned him. When the police went and arrested him, he was married to an Asian woman with a child, which was um, uh, something they were very, very concerned about. And child protection got involved and the kid was placed elsewhere. They arrested him. Like any good pedophile, he um, weirdly made some admissions in the interview because he totally didn't think he'd done anything wrong, right? 
So he made uh, enough admissions. Like I said, though, there's only really a handful of ways that people go from the thoughts to the behaviour. And one of the ways is that they think they're not doing anything wrong. Yes, yeah. Because these people love children, of course. Right. I just read one terrible report very recently where a man talked about how his own daughter was just one of those really sexual kids. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it was something along those lines. So, yeah, they believe that they're not doing anything wrong. They believe that they're in a kind of consensual Mm. adult, you know, kids are sexual and whatever, whatever, whatever. So he made enough admissions because, again, when they question him, it's really strictly about the charges that are arising from the statement. So he made some admissions. So then, of course, you know, we're going to proceed to trial. So we had a two weeks uh, set aside for a trial at Parramatta Local Court. We were assigned a social worker, which is very cute. Um, yeah. <laughs> is that hard for you and do you think for them, for you having been a social worker? Uh, look, um, yeah, I think still are. people like me are probably very not very good patients, no, I would think. No. I was a lot younger then, though, and she was very lovely. Probably the little bit of that story that people don't know is that when you are an interstate witness, so we had two weeks at a resort in Parramatta mm-hmm. for me, my partner, my sister and her husband mm-hmm. with, a, I think, $300 a day per diem each for expenses and our airfares paid for and, you know, all of those sorts of things. The place that I was working at the time, um, I was working at Odyssey House and they just gave me leave. They just paid me for the time that I wasn't at work. That's not annual leave, not sick leave. They just paid me to go. Odyssey House, that's another really well-known well-known rehab. I mean, you're working in all the most hardcore coalface kind of rehabs in Australia. Yeah, yeah. I worked at Berry Street for a decade. Wowee. Yeah. So, yeah, Odyssey were great. They were really supportive. My manager knew what was happening. So, yeah, uh, what happened was we went to court on the first day. So we're all kind of in court. There's a whole lot of kind of back and forth that happens around negotiating between the prosecutor and his lawyer and, you know, back and forth, back and forth. So we were going to give evidence from a different room, not in the courtroom with him, but we ended up not going to trial because he pled guilty. To all? All charges? No, he didn't plead guilty to all the charges, but he pled guilty, again, you know, they do a bit of negotiation, right? So he pled guilty to the, um, like, sexual penetration of a child. They're the serious ones. Yes. They're the bad ones. Yep. So he, yeah, so he pled guilty to maybe three out of 12 charges or something like that. But like I said, they got him on the most serious charges and then the others were dropped. They dropped the others. Yeah. And then, so then that means he he gets an automatic reduction in sentencing. Yeah. But still, they are serious charges. Yeah. Wow. Um, and how did you feel about, about that news when you received it? We had the time of our lives. We had a two-week holiday. In a resort, we played tennis every day and hung out in the spa and because, yeah, my sister and I got like two weeks in a resort. Together. Together. Which you had not had since you were teenagers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, everything was paid for and, yeah, we went out for dinners. And And how was that? How, you know, how was the the coming together with your sister and after all that time? Yeah, um, look, we, she came down and stayed with me in rehab when I was maybe six months clean. Mm. So. Oh, that is a. Beautiful thing. Yeah, we're quite close. Good for her. So she's in Brisbane. I try to get up to see her a couple of times a year. Yeah, we're quite close these days. Awesome. What sentence? Let's talk sentencing. Yeah, he got 12 years. That yeah. is a fair sentence. It is a fair yeah, whack. Unfortunately, in Australia, mm, yeah. for sex offending. It is. 
um, and is an RSO for life. So actually, I am quite open about telling that story, particularly because we got a conviction and he went to jail and that is very unusual and I'm hyper aware that that is very unusual. So, but what I did have to do was read out my victim impact statement in court. I didn't have to, but I did. Yeah. Um, it was pretty nerve-wracking because, by the, so convicted, and then the sentencing was quite some time later. Was it? Yeah, it was quite a few months. And he was on, he was out, I think, until he was sentenced. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, the victim impact statement was pretty intense. I can imagine it was very well written and yeah. very intense. Yeah. And um, I'm glad that you decided to to read it. Hmm. Yeah, my sister did not. No. She just submitted it and then, you know, it's taken into account by the magistrate. But yeah. I went in and read it out in court. He was in that plastic box. So, yeah, quite a long period of time. The whole thing took about five years. And then we were eligible for Victims of Crime Compo. Right. So we got 50 grand from the, you know, yep. pool of money that they take off criminals mm-hmm. um, in 2010, which I went on holidays with and bought some really nice kayaks and stuff. The court process was really good for my sister. The very kind of tightly wound edge that she had before that kind of evaporated, like a bit of anxiety that I think she'd always had because it's a process of taking back your power, right? And I had people say stupid stuff like, oh, you put someone in jail. It's like, no, I didn't actually. His behaviour put him in jail. And I guess the other thing for me is I know we don't really talk about being victimised, but actually that's not mine. I didn't do anything wrong, right? It's nothing for me to be ashamed of. Absolutely. It's for, you know, sex offenders. They should feel bad, not victims. Thank you so much to our guest today, who, as we said earlier, has chosen to remain anonymous. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 92 76 or 13 Yarn.org. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.